Welcome to the Bedpost Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Erin Pym. Welcome, everybody. If you haven't heard the pod before, I'll tell you what you're getting yourself involved in. Usually, I take performers and presenters from my Bedpost stage here that I, the stage show that I run here in Toronto, and I bring them into the studio to have a nice, open, uh, frank discussion about sex and sexuality. So today, I do have a very fantastic guest that, yes, he has done the stage show, and now I've got him here in the bedroom, and he's already taken off his socks, so it's a really good uh, start here. <laughs> but before I get to my lovely guest, I just want to remind you all of my Patreon. Uh, it's how I make money for the podcast, so, you know, if you've been a listener and you want to throw me a couple bucks, support the artist and all that kind of thing, you can do so at patreon.com slash thebedpostshow. You're going to get bonus episodes. You're going to get audio erotica that I've written and I'm reading to you. You're going to get, um, like, some fetish content as well. There are some photo sets on there. And uh, fetish clips, too, by yours truly. I'm also a pro-dom by the name of Lady Pym. So if any of that sounds interesting, or you just want to throw a couple bucks my way and support, once again, you can do that at patreon.com slash thebedpostshow. Without further ado, I have a sockless guest. (laughs) And I'm very excited about this. Um, I think he approached me uh, just about the stage show, like doing comedy, but uh, I've also found out that he has a, an amazing background in sex and sexuality in this field. So I'm really excited to talk to him today. We have former researcher and current comedian Dan Udi. Hi. Hello. <laughs> it's cold outside, but I'm sweaty indoors. <laughs> That's the story of my life. Yeah. I'm just in between. Oh my god, you had part of this in your in your yeah, bit. My, my, I have a, a long bit about guys with ginger fetishes, um, and then one of them who told me that ginger's apparently going extinct, and I say it tracks because there is not a single climate where I thrive. <laughs> yeah. I'm the same way. It's true. This is the proof. It's true. This is, I am seeing yeah. living proof here today. <sighs> okay, so when we say when we say former researcher, what does that mean? Do you want to explain that for yeah, us? Yeah, so what I mean by that is I have a PhD from the University of England. It was in an English department, but it was a kind of bit of a monster project. I was writing about the history of HIV AIDS media production from the 80s all the way to the present um, in the context of digital streaming. And so I was writing about things like amateur porn on Tumblr, cruising networks on Squirt, um, old activist porn videotapes, among among a bunch of other kind of non-explicitly sexual things. But that's what I was doing full-time for a couple of years. Uh, And then I moved here, Mm -hmm. and I now work for Canada's biggest HIV and hepatitis C non-profit, and I basically produce all the pamphlets that you will see in the clinic, Mm -hmm. um, along with uh, some other kind of more sciencey stuff that goes to service providers um, about HIV treatments and things. And that is my day job, um, but it's not really research-based, I'm editing. So I don't, I'm not an academic, really, anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not at a university. I just get to kind of tinker around with fun little pamphlets about STIs. 
<laughs> and then in the evenings I tell jokes about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you load up on all this material, yeah. and then you just let the audience have yeah, it. That is pretty much my material is just basically mostly sex stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which, well, when you approached me to do bedpost, I was like, oh, yeah. oh yes, <laughs> yeah. oh yes, you can do my I show. My people. Yes, totally. <laughs> So, where did you, your, like, interest in all of this start? Like, why did you go to school for this? I, I actually, I did all three of my degrees back-to-back. Um, I started doing a kind of fine arts BFA, so I have a kind of, like, creative making things background. Um, and I got really into, kind of, it was after, I, like, basically I went to university just after I'd come out. Um, it was 2000 and... <laughs> um... And at that point, I noticed that a lot of people my age were suddenly kind of getting really interested in, like, hip, cool AIDS stuff from the 80s, because they'd managed to find, like, old videotapes online and all these things, and, and I noticed a lot of that stuff was happening, and I was really interested in it, and I also kind of was learning about, sort of, the history of HIV and sexual health in, in my community, and mm-hmm. was just quite shocked and angry that I'd never been taught it by anyone, and I think yeah. that sentiment was felt by a lot of young queer guys who were my age who were basically born after highly effective antiretroviral therapy so we'd never really seen anyone sick in the street yeah, um, yeah none of your friends have yeah, died we never had like your... we never had to bury any of our friends yeah many of us are kind of young enough that we didn't even necessarily have uncles or anything that died yeah um and so yeah i and then I, the more i learned about the fact that hiv rates were the way that they are this was this was just before prep um and, and other things like treatment as prevention but i was like oh this kind of this is a, how would i not know this i'm really interested in this what the fuck is this all about yeah. i started just making a lot of art about it then after a while i was like no i just i don't like artists <laughs> making art is too stressful i just <laughs> uh creatives yeah oh, artists are such divas <laughs> it's just like no it was it was just very stressful um so i did that and then i basically i was like i really want to carry on writing about this stuff like i really yeah. enjoy writing about it um and I was working as, like, an art critic, and, and I was doing kind of art history MA, and then I had this, like, idea for a project that was just PhD research about... The, the PhD project was basically kind of about my... inspired by my own personal experience, of starting from the point of, like, what is it like to be a young uh, person in the queer community in the broadest sense of the word, mm-hmm. nowadays, that has a weird historical relationship to this kind of quote, older period mm-hmm. of uh, queer and trans activism, which happened before we were born. Yeah. Um, and which I think with, with the advent of things like video streaming technologies, suddenly we were able to have like a crazy, like brand new relationship with just as we become adults, we were suddenly able to discover all this material. Mm-hmm. Um, as you did. Yeah. yeah. And then the whole, th- uh, the, the thing that happens with PhDs is you start with one idea and then it morphs into something else completely. And I had no intention of writing about porn. And then, <laughs> and then there we are. And then there I am. Yeah. So what was your, so your, like your thesis that you oh wrote, what, what was this about? <laughs> the, <laughs> I feel like I just fuck. caused you to have it. This, this is a PTSD attack. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. What's happening right now? <laughs> Oh, yeah, okay. Um, also, like, grad school is just four years and people being like, what's your PhD on? What's it on? Yes, um, yes, yes, right, right, right. But basically, uh, the main takeaway argument that I said was that um, was that people over the past kind of 15 years who have been engaging directly and indirectly with historic media and the legacies of HIV's activism are doing a different kind of sort of theoretical thinking through their body. So I was saying that the people who were... Um, making amateur porn videotapes that were kind of engaging with the new types of sort of 
prophylactic prevention and treatment of prevention um, and the people that were going on talk shows and talking about their body as trans people in a certain way and kind of resisting narratives that were put forward by TV hosts Mm. and activists that were making kind of video montages were all doing different things with and about their bodies to advance kind of what we understand about inequality and difference. Um, And this is in the context of America because they have to have a sort of geographical frame for it. Right. But that's basically... The shortest way I can explain it without Damn. giving you 15 minutes. <laughs> Just your tight, your tight 15. And I want you to keep your, your viewers. I don't want you to lose them. <laughs> <laughs> After that, it gets boring. <laughs> And wow, that's that's really just so amazing. Um, and so today you're working in at an HIV nonprofit. Yeah, so I wound up with the perfect job for what I did because yeah. I the thing about like coming out of uh, academia is that basically you're you're overqualified in many senses for loads of jobs, but also you don't have like practical skills, practical experience. Yes. Like I was teaching and I was editing and I was doing all that, but I didn't have any years working in an office. So basically I was interviewing for like minimum wage gigs and I basically was like, I don't know how I can survive on this little money. And also I've worked so hard for so many years. Like how the fuck do I want to find something where it's not wasted? Yes. And then miraculously like a job as an editor that required like English skills and, and kind of all that stuff. Creative stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at this AIDS nonprofit opened up. Um, I got switched onto a permanent contract after a colleague of mine left mm-hmm. and then and she was editing a magazine they published for HIV positive people mm-hmm. as well as a bunch of other things and I briefly like had to think about it because I'm at the moment HIV negative and so mm-hmm. I was like do I want to have this job like it's it's I don't want to be taking this away from anyone um, oh right I see yeah in terms of like working on a publication for positive people mm-hmm. um, and my predecessor was negative too and she was basically like I've never had any pushback from it and I per me I personally I was like okay if I take this on I'm just gonna have a hands-off approach more so than like most magazine editors in that I will basically be the person behind the strings bringing yeah bringing different freelancers and writers and interview subjects all together to kind of make their own work and their own stories shine um and And you're just putting it all together yeah take myself out of the picture as much as possible because it's not about me um, yeah. just they needed someone in the organization to step in and do it from her and I was like well I, I need a full-time permanent job not just a contract so I took it and amazing yeah it's been yeah. great that kind of uh feels to me like what I do or what I strive to do with bedpost right mm-hmm. when I'm like talking to you know uh folks like I'm a queer person as well but like um you know say trans folks like mm-hmm. disabled folks people of color like I'm yeah. a white able-bodied cis woman yeah you know so yeah I'm queer but there's also that. So I'm just trying to, you know, in, in essence, do the same thing. I'm like trying to curate and bring everyone together and trying to like, in a lot of the pods, I try to, when I have a story that really like, I feel like needs to be heard and I just want to have like a platform for it. Mm. I like sit back as much as possible. I'm like, no, you just talk, please, please, please. You just talk. Like Uh, I I found like in, in my profession, because I come from like a kind of arts and humanities background where people are used to thinking really critically about these type of questions and about your own position when you're coming to discussing certain topics. And it's very different from people that are scientists or who work in public health or who are kind of epidemiologists who just kind of talk about people as numbers. Hmm. And I don't ever really tend to reflect critically on like who they are or what they're doing, because ultimately it's like, get numbers down of like new infections or X, Y, Z. So it's a different approach. But I think it's like, in that respect... I have a kind of maybe 
um, slightly more critical perspective than lots of people that work in that industry just because I've been trained in a very different way. Yeah. Like a lot of them are kind of academically trained to a very high level, but in public health. So they're just thinking about like things at a macro scale rather than what is the nature of the knowledge you produce? Who's producing it? Who's talking about who? All that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And dealing with people like on a case by case basis. Yeah. And, like, so do you, so tell me what actually happens at this nonprofit. Like, yeah, so, so you produce obviously literature and whatnot. Yes. What else do we you guys are, do? We that? are a knowledge exchange organization, so we don't actually do any frontline work. Okay. Um, so there are some AIDS nonprofits in the city that are running kind of testing initiatives and they are doing outreach events and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, we have an education arms there are members of our organization that travel across the country each one of them has a different province where they are going to sort of teach people about hiv and hep c prevention and treatment and all that kind of stuff um are you able to speak on that a little bit um, i know you're not one of the educators that i'm not one of the educators i have like i've I've taken their online courses that they teach Mm -hmm. um and obviously i've worked in the resources that we use what are the main things we need to know Generally, in terms of... Yeah. Okay, let's, let's, let's talk about, uh, say, HIV prevention. Yeah. Well, the biggest messages that we are trying to get out at the moment, we're mounting a huge national kind of ad campaign, is about U equals U, which stands for undetectable equals untransmittable. Great. And what that means, basically, is that if you are HIV positive, and if you are on what we call effective treatment, so it means you are on treatment that is going well enough that the amount of virus in your blood is super, super low, it couldn't be detected by a normal test, if that is you then the evidence is completely unequivocal across kind of a couple of years of studies with thousands of people that you absolutely cannot transmit HIV. Amazing. Amazing. So like if you are in a serodiscordant relationship, which is where say one of you is HIV positive, one of you is negative, if it's just the two of you Mm -hmm. and the positive person has an undetectable viral load, Mm -hmm. you don't need condoms to prevent HIV transmission. Wow. Um, and you said, you said, sorry, I kind of cut you off there. Mm-hmm. You said sexually. So yes. are there other ways um, that you can? Well, basically I think the evidence for injection drug use is, isn't as strong because the large scale study hasn't been done to that same extent, if that makes sense. Yep. It's yep. about the quality of evidence basically. So like we, I think as an organization are, cause we, we produce sort of like Canada's like official line on these things. Cool. Uh, so for sexual transmission, we say if you're undetectable, it's zero risk. Amazing. Um, if you're injecting drugs, it's like it's it's very low. We just can't completely with certainty say absolute zero. Gotcha. And so we have to be very careful about what we say. Gotcha, but at the gotcha. very least, like it it will reduce it a lot. But we we can't really kind of make those calls for people. Mm-hmm. Um, the same thing goes for prep, which is pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is basically where you take a pill every day. Um, for most people, uh, that prevents you from being able to contract HIV. Mm -hmm. Um, and if you are having sex, so kind of, uh, anal or vaginal sex, um, it basically reduces it by 99 point something percent. Mm -hmm. Like there have been a handful of cases of people who have contracted HIV when they've been taking it every day as you're supposed to. And that is basically because there was like a strain of HIV that they contracted, which was resistant to the drugs that were already in this pill. I see. Yeah, because these, these, the, the pill that people take um, is one that was normally used for treatment and then scientists figured out actually you could probably give it to negative people and it mm-hmm. would stop them contracting HIV as well. So these two things have basically both happened in the last, like... Yeah, really recently. Seven... PrEP was, was approved in America in 2012. U equals U was 
2015. So, like, it's only really been it's a couple also of years. recent. Where, well, yeah, and in Canada, obviously, we're, we're not the States, so it's slightly behind in terms of people being able to have access to PrEP on public health programs and generic versions of the pill, which is super important because it's cheaper. Um, yeah, how, ex- how expensive is it? Like, is it re- a really expensive Generic medication? at the moment. Um, it will cut for... PrEP will cost you about $250 a month if you haven't got any coverage, but it is often covered by provincial programs. Okay. Um, so, for example, here in Ontario, if you're on the Trillium Drug Benefit Program, mm-hmm. um, PrEP is covered under that, um, and many kind of workplace insurance programs will often sort of pick up deductibles for that type of thing as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, what, what type of people uh, take PrEP uh, or might, might want to take PrEP? So we tend to talk about it in terms of like risk, so like high high risk. So, I, what, I, I just, so what does that mean? Yeah, I prefer risk? to not say high risk people because I think no one is inherently high risk. I think there are things that you do that are that can be higher risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, if you are a man or a trans woman who has unprotected anal sex with men, mm-hmm. then that would make you a quote unquote high risk sort of category person. So that's the the, the kind of the real big demographic that we're trying to get on prep is so uh, anal sex with penises essentially. anal sex with penises yeah. unprotected if, if, that's considered if you have risk. or have had a penis at any point and you are having unprotected anal sex yeah. then prep is good for you it prep works for cis women trans men people with vaginas mm-hmm. prep kind of prep works for everybody but just there are different communities of people where the hiv incidence is much higher mm-hmm. and so depending on what type of sex you're having, the likelihood of you coming into contact with it is much higher. Right. Um, so it's a bit more urgent, I think, for some people than for others. But also, say, if you're injecting drugs as well, it's a similar thing to having an undetectable viral load where it will it will bring down your risk by a lot. We just can't say, I think, exactly how much. But it's still, it's like, it's a great tool. When you take it, you're not just taking it. What you have to do is you basically, you have to get into a certain kind of healthcare arrangement with your provider where you are screened every three months for STIs okay. and they check your blood level, your blood work just to make sure that nothing weird is happening with your kidneys because for a tiny number of people you can have a little bit of a of kidney trouble with it. Okay. Um, but yeah, generally like some people seem to think that if everybody goes on prep, everybody will catch syphilis and we'll all die. Uh-huh. Um, and we, uh, my job, have looked at the data. We basically like summarized all the data on all the different studies relating to to STIs in PrEP use amongst MSM, so that's men who have sex with men is the category. Mm -hmm. And generally it's like, some of the studies say STI rates go up, some say they go down. Um, Generally speaking, one of them that we found is this like big modelling study, so it's people with a computer trying to figure out what would hypothetically happen over a really long period of time. Mm -hmm. And they figured that even if say 10% of that population are on PrEP and they're never using condoms, Mm -hmm. if a lot of them are getting STIs, the overall amount will still go down because of the amount of times they're getting tested and treated regularly. Mm -hmm. Basically, PrEP is good because it gets people into STI care. So even if, like... I mean, it's, it's hard to sort of, like, make grand claims either way, and I have to be very careful about what I say. Yeah. But generally speaking, I think the, the net effect of it is a positive one because it gets people into a system where they're at least monitoring their sexual health, and they're aware of it. And most STIs are treatable. It's, Mm -hmm. like, no different from catching a cold or getting a sore throat. Mm -hmm. Um, There shouldn't be any more stigma than if you've got the flu. Like, Mm -hmm. it's just a thing that happens, and basically anything, I think, that gets people into healthcare and into being educated about their sexual health is a good thing. Yeah. Um, What about PEP? What about PEP? Yes, PEP stands for uh, post-exposure prophylaxis. Okay. PEP is what you can take if you think you may have been exposed to HIV. Okay. 
And what it involves is, like PrEP, um, it involves drugs that are normally used to treat people with HIV. But this is a combination of drugs that you will take for one whole month, for 28 days. And you have to start it within 72 hours of being exposure. exposed. Um, and it is not as effective, say, as PrEP in terms of the percentage point. Um, I can't give you an exact number because I'm not entirely sure of my head. It's very effective, mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't work in all cases. But basically, the sooner you start it, the better. Um, and what happens is you can get it from emergency departments. You can get it from doctors. Um, you can get it from sexual health clinics. But lots of people don't really know. Healthcare providers, depending on where you are, might not know exactly what it is or if you qualify. Right. Because people have to assess your case. Uh, and they have to figure out if they think there's actually a likelihood of you having been come into contact with HIV. Because, like, for example, if you gave someone a blowjob, mm -hmm. we say with, with oral sex performed mm -hmm. on people with penises that, like, the chance of contracting HIV is so small it's basically hypothetical. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It's, like, there, there are tiny, very specific circumstances, like if you just had dental surgery. Right, yes. And someone came in your mouth and you swilled it around into, a, like, an open wound. Yes, yeah, yeah. Like, you would have to do something like that to realistically contract HIV. Like, it has mm -hmm. happened a handful of times across the world, record, like, a handful of recorded cases in the entire history of people studying HIV. Mm -hmm. so, so it's not like if I flossed this no. morning and I saw blood when I was flossing. And then you blew someone that And evening. then I blew someone. Yeah. Fine. Yeah. Right. It's like, I think, like, oral sex is something that a lot of people get questions about all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, We yeah. at Katie have produced a specific resource just about STIs and HIV and oral sex. And now, like, what is or is not transmissible, depending on the kind of oral sex you have. Mm -hmm. And basically, HIV is something that you don't need to be worried about. Wow. That's um, very interesting. That's yeah. something I didn't know. Yeah. Quite honestly. It, but yeah. it's also something that I think, because, because in science, you can't say completely no likelihood until you have the data like we do with being undetectable, where it's thousands of people and thousands and thousands of times they've had sex. Um, because you don't have that data, you can't say never. Yeah. And also it's like really hard to actually kind of like to scientifically measure, like it, re it requires people reporting the kind of sex they had and then being completely accurate about what exactly happened and then not having had sex with anybody else in like a certain window period. So like so much of it is just kind of you inferring and basically guessing stuff. So mm -hmm. it's difficult to get data, but basically it's people, I think, um, panic about it a lot because the information sometimes can be um, a little bit contradictory depending on where you get it from because some organizations will just play it more safe and say there is a risk mm -hmm. Even, there's always a risk there's, there's always, always risk. yeah there's safe always... safer sex items yeah yeah there's risk with everything, everything. in life and oral sex is and one sex, of those things yes and sex is yeah for sure on that list as well but yeah. like basically oral sex yeah you can get things like chlamydia gonorrhea yeah that'll happen you can get it in your throat but in terms yes. of getting hiv you don't need to worry don't about really it. Need to worry if, about like it. for example, if you are just going around blowing people, you're not you you're not necessarily a candidate for prep. You're not high risk. You're not high for risk. Example. You don't need to you don't need to be worrying about that stuff. Blow as many people as you want. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like it is You might get gonorrhea in your throat. Yeah, you might get gonorrhea in your throat. Don't forget yeah. to get throat sobs. You can get syphilis, you can all that kind of stuff. But also these are things that like medications work for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like it's Or you're gonna get cold sores, which you probably already have H HSV one anyways. The cold sores thing so, so I mean Yes, yeah, the herpes thing. It diverts slightly, but it's what so really interesting for me because I'm from England and I have lived in the States as part of my PhD. I lived in New York for a bit and DC for a bit as well. Mm -hmm. Um and now I live here and the attitude towards 
like face her like face her piece called yeah, source. source varies so much depending on the country and interesting I think is ref- reflective of the different types of healthcare systems that we have. Canada is closer to England in this sense because it's like a slightly socialised system and England is like fully socialised. Right. But I, I actually had a friend who, who was doing postcard research and looking into the history of STIs and found the documents where um, whichever company it is that makes Valtrex, I can't remember, but oh. basically like in the 80s were trying to, f- internal documents, they were trying to figure out how they could brand facial herpes as something that people needed to basically be ashamed of and treat. And in America, people talk about cold sores as an STI, like it's something that you have to disclose. Oral, just oral cords. Oral herpes, like, yeah. Like to your they'll mouth. They'll be like, oh yep. my god, you have an STI. Like, they'll talk about it as something that, like, you haven't told someone. Yes. In, in, in the same way that you would, pro- like, maybe want to disclose other types of STIs. Yeah. Um, and it's like, no, I was six and I got these yeah. at camp. In, in, <laughs> By sharing a cup. With- in the UK, they are cold sores. In the UK, people say herpes. Yeah. They would just mean gentle herpes. Got you. They would yeah. never really use herpes to talk about their face because you don't even necessarily... I, I didn't know until I was an adult that they were... It was, it was the same a, thing. It was yeah. It was also a herpes virus. Yeah. Because generally speaking, like herpes viruses are unsightly, but they're not really going to do anything to you. Like, no. Yeah. They're dangerous to babies. Right. But so I think preg- pregnant people, yeah. yeah, having a vaginal birth when you have vaginal herpes. Yeah, like, I think I think it's like, like okay, stuff like that. But I, I'm I'm my I have a colleague that basically does desire education stuff in terms of that. But generally mm-hmm. speaking, I think yeah, there's like there's 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 hypothetical cases of, of, of basically childbirth and babies. So for example, if you had a cold sore, probably not best to kiss a baby on the face, right? Because yeah. that can like lead to serious complications. Yeah. Um, but for adults, it is just unsightly. Yeah, it's a chronic thing that ha- pops up every once and again. Yeah, it might like, itch, for, tingle, or burn, but... Have it for a couple of weeks, and then it's gone. It scabs over, and then bye. Yeah, you're not going to wind up infertile. It's not going to do any real, like, nasty things to your body. It's just going to, like, be there and basically look a bit rough, and then people will probably stigmatize you. That's the thing. Yeah, that's like, the thing, That's right? the thing. That's the worst part of it. But that's what pharmaceutical companies were banking on. Have done they, to yeah. us. <laughs> they have, like, stigma is profitable. God damn it. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that fucking terrible? That's how marketing works. Yeah. It's like, same thing, yeah, just with like feminine hygiene products and stuff. You know, mm. they have literally told us that be we. Be ashamed of your period. Yes. Be ashamed be sh- of everything. Yes. Buy stuff. Of your odor. Yeah. And and what is the common denominator? Because we want you to buy things. Yeah. And that has literally shaped how we think about our own bodies. Yeah, completely. It's just mad. Okay, so what is hep C all about? What do we need to know? So hepatitis C is a virus that affects the liver. Okay. Um, a lot of people don't know they have it. If you have it, basically, you can not know you have it for many, many years until symptoms start to show up. And basically, eventually, it can lead to sort of uh, liver damage, liver scarring, and liver failure if it gets really, really serious. Is this something we do get tested for? when we, If we go in and we're like, can you do an STI screen? Is that something they will I check think, for? I think this varies depending on who you are and where you get tested. Gotcha. I think most routine tests probably won't. They might do. I'm not completely sure. Okay. Because um, this is not your department yes, specifically, right? Yes, so my organisation right? uh, does hepatitis C and HIV. Um, I'm not entirely sure about the programming standards for hepatitis C, but what I do know is that um, basically there are certain... Uh, communities, groups of people or people who, different types of activities that will put you at higher risk gotcha. for uh, contracting hepatitis C. Some of those are if you are 
born, I think, between 1945 and 65, so basically for a baby boomer. Okay. Um, because, uh... Yeah, why is that? That was a period... I think that was because there was a period where people didn't know what it was and how it was transmitted. Um, basically, hepatitis C is, a uh, It's transmitted through blood, but unlike HIV, which disintegrates really rapidly when it gets into contact with the air... Okay. Um... Hep C can actually last for quite a while when it's dried. So, mm-hmm. for example, a shared razor. Ah. You could shave your face. If you cut yourself a little bit, the blood would dry. It could be a tiny speck you can't see. If and if someone else uses that, like a, a day later or something, you could potentially contract hepatitis C, C through that. Wow. So that's why you could. it could be coming from unclean uh, like razors or tattoo needles, um, piercing needles, um, anything using kind of a... I think the... Ele- not electrolysis, but like any sort of kind of any anything that would poke your skin okay. that hasn't been properly sterilized. Mm-hmm. That might uh, have blood on it. That might have blood on it, yes. Mm-hmm. So anything that comes into contact with blood could potentially um, transmit it that way. Generally speaking, for the listeners of your podcast, um, I think the kind of the demographic that probably needs to be more aware of it than other people are um, if you are a quote MSM, um, so if you are a man who has sex with men, or if you are a trans woman and you are having unprotected anal sex, we are seeing more and more numbers of people contracting hepatitis C. Um, and generally, we think it's because it, we think it's due to activities that like have a higher likelihood of sharing blood. So if it's okay. kind of like, like fisting or really rough sex or group sex, mm-hmm. um, sharing sex toys, um, sometimes even uh, sharing lube because like tiny bits of blood on people's hands could get into lube which is then shared with somebody else okay we're talking about like microscopic yeah, things so, so it's you cannot might, see so with you, your it's, eyes. You, it's not that like oh my god there's a ton of blood it's like it could be very little amounts of blood um dried blood dried blood yeah, yeah. wow yeah but i think i'm not 100 percent sure but i'm pretty sure that if you are in those affected communities um and you are getting tested at a clinic which deals with a lot of lgbtq people okay they are and especially if you're honest with your healthcare provider about the type of sex you're having so if you're telling them that you're having unprotected anal sex or group sex those kind of things ideally no one should be judging you they should just be giving you the health care you need yeah, no fucking um me. and that should include just a routine hepatitis c test yeah. um also the i think the one group that um where we see like the most incidence of hepatitis c infection is people who inject drugs okay so if you are injecting drugs, then it's important to get regulated for hepatitis C. But the best news about all of this mm-hmm. is that you can be cured of hep C. Oh, hey. Yeah. And there's a bunch of different medications that will do that. You take them for a different amount of time, depending on what type or kind of what uh, genotype we call of hepatitis C you have. So basically you get tested and then you do a bunch of other tests and people figure out exactly what type of treatment to give you. But anywhere, I think between six and 12 weeks, don't quote me on that. But basically medication is very effective. It cures most people. It doesn't make you immune. So you can get it again, Mm -hmm. but essentially you could be cured of it. That's amazing. Which is great. That's great news. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's interesting how you're talking about even uh, feeling stigma, like at a health care facility. Like I had, um, uh, like my GP, my, my family doctor that I go to, I, now I don't get any sexual testing of any sort with her mm-hmm. because I got like, basically I wanted, I was trying to request to get an AIDS test as well because yeah. at the time I was like, HIV test, HIV test, pardon me. I was like, let's do a full screening, like an, a full STI screening. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, and can I also have the HIV test? Yeah. And she was like, well, why? 
And I was like, that was enough. That was enough to make me feel like, just like feel shitty about it. I was like, because I want to, like Mm. I've had unprotected sex. Like I have a lot of different types of sex. I've had lots of partners. Mm -hmm. Um, It might just be good to know my status. Like I felt really put off when she was like, why? I don't think she was like, I don't think you do. You probably don't. You probably shouldn't get it. And I'm like, why would you perpetuate that? I feel like it's it's wild to me that anyone would deter someone from wanting to know about their HIV status. Yeah. There is there is certainly the phenomenon of people that we in the biz called the worried well. So some people will like constantly be regularly testing even though they're always at low risk. Okay. But at the same time, there most are, people don't do yeah, that. Yeah, most right? people don't do that, and also you. So to assume it, yeah, it's like what? And and also, I mean that what that person was doing is they were assuming a lot about who you are, the types of sex you're having. Because I'm a cis woman here, yeah. and I'm like, yeah, they're like, oh, she probably doesn't have, yeah. you know, anal sex. But that, or... what that also does is that also then reflects the way they treat the people that do come under these, quote, exactly, high-risk categories. Exactly, exactly. Because if that's how they treat people who they think don't have to worry about anything... Thank you. It yeah. means that anybody that slightly falls under that other category... Like, like I, I myself have... I, I've had... I've been to so many different, like... Doctors and whatever through the years in different countries just to get my routine tests. Yeah. Um, and I have had many that have treated me as if I, as a person, am inherently high risk, regardless of how proactive I'm being about my sexual health. Yes. So like. Uh, because you're gay. Yeah, because I'm gay. Even though I was, I was, I was. It was but uh, often before prep, I was reporting like religious amounts of condom use. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> And they were, and I still have people basically acting as if, like, you need to be going tested. Like, because uh, I was blowing people without condoms, some people were, like, acting as if I was going out and having unprotected group sex with no other kinds of, like, protection. Yeah. Just because of the type of person that I was, their inherently alarm bells went off, irrespective of how responsible I was being with the actual kind of sex that I was having. Um, And that, the, the... first instances of those happened when I was much younger and I had just come out and was just starting to have sex and I was basically like terrified by my first ever encounter with a sexual health healthcare provider who basically pretty much yelled at me and told me that I was like not being responsible and needed to come in every three months which by the way if you are using condoms, you do not need to be going in every three months if you're not having that much sex with people. Yeah, so say I'm, okay, yeah, say I'm having all types of different sex. I'm having unprotected oral sex, like I never wear a condom for oral yep. sex, and I'm having protected vaginal and anal sex. When, how often should I go? What's, you know, what's excessive, what's, yeah, um, at the very least, I should be what? I'll go from the top. So if you are cis guy who has sex with guys or you're a trans woman who has sex with cis guys um, and you're irregularly or never using condoms with a lot of people every three months every three months is basically the most pretty much the most you should um, yeah so like if you're not if you're not if you're having condomless sex with multiple new partners every three months is probably a good idea generally speaking if you are just using condoms and you don't have that many sexual partners for an HIV test Oh god, I had to be really careful about what I say because I, uh, mm, I, I think that if you don't have many partners, once a year mm-hmm. is fine. So we're just you, talking about HIV with all. This, oh yeah, right? sorry. Uh, yeah. yeah, not um, just all your ST- yeah, yeah, yeah. STIs. Yeah, if, if if you don't have many partners, basically the recommendations in England anyway, where because this is the last time I would think about 
that. Yeah, in, in a lot of detail. Um, it would be like once a year, like a standard. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe like up to six months if you're sleeping with a lot of people with condoms. If you're having a lot of unrelated sex, three months. Um, mm-hmm. If you're talking about, um, say, a cishet woman who is single, having casual sex, um, using condoms, Record, I'm not your doctor. <laughs> yes, yes. I do not... And this is, I feel like a lawyer, but basically, like, this is just my kind of guesstimate. Yes. Um, I think every six months is probably fine if you're having kind of, like... If within that period you maybe have slept with a couple of people. Right. It all depends on basically, like, you know your body best. You know how much sex you're having. You know how much risk you think you're putting yourself at. And you know how much you maybe want to protect your other partners and yourself. Mm-hmm. Um... Because obviously, if you're having sex with two people a year, there's no point getting tested every three months. But if you're having sex with two people a week, maybe you, it's a good idea to be getting tested every three months. Yeah, um, for but, HIV. Yeah. yeah. And I think other STIs, I like the number of tests you get for other STIs. It's also kind of relative to the amount of sex you're having with the number of people that, that you're having it with. It's always best to, to just think about, reflect about the kind of sex you have, but also, has that changed are you having more or less sex than before? Are you using kind of barrier methods like condoms more or less than before? Because basically condoms are the thing that will protect you from Most. bacterial STIs. Yeah, yeah, right, bacterial STIs. Um, I like that. Yeah. yeah, so it's like syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia. If you're not using a condom, you're going to come into contact with them. Yeah. Probably. But also, it's fine if you do. But yeah, it's... It's it's all relative. It's all, it's, it's all relative. To um, who your partner is, how often, yeah. what are your barriers. The most important thing is to just find out where to go and find a healthcare provider that you feel comfortable with. Because I yeah. think if you have a doctor that is incredibly sex negative and will shame you about the kind of sex you're having, or where you won't feel comfortable telling them the truth, that's going to do a whole ton of damage. You're probably not going to be able... They're not going to be able to give you accurate advice about how to protect yourself or if you should be tested because you're not going to be able to feel comfortable talking to them in the first place so try and look around for places if you're in Toronto hassle-free clinic is great yeah I was just going to ask you what are your top recommendations yeah if you're you're in Toronto go to hassle-free Gerard and Church yes Uh, if you are interested in PrEP then I would really recommend getting in touch with the Maple Leaf Clinic if you are a man who has sex with men Mm mm-hmm um, I am pretty sure they also are generally kind of open in terms of their clientele they accept, but um, I know that the vast majority of their clients are cis men. Okay. Um, cool. I just don't think I don't think they will exclude people, but you have to check with them. But they generally are amazing because they, if you get in with them, they will take care of of um, all your monitoring and and everything, doing all your tests and it, all your follow ups, all, like all, all your follow ups, yeah. all your routine tests. They'll they'll reissue your prescriptions. Um, and they are below the Maple Leaf uh, Clinic, which is has some of like the best doctors in the country who work with HIV positive patients. Amazing! Uh, so they are the experts in all things HIV and sexual health. Amazing! And I appreciate you. I know I'm asking you to give us a lot of information, <laughs> and you're like, "Oh, I don't. Want, I'm not a doctor. I'm not. I'm not the educator. So I just write the thing. I, I just I, write the thing. I just decide which doodles of a butthole we're going to use." <laughs> I know I'm not telling people to... Yeah, okay. But I appreciate you so much, and thank okay. you so much for all the no, information. No, 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 Oh, my God, it's amazing. Okay, so we're going to take a really quick break, and then we're come back. going to come back in the second half, and we're going to have, have a little more lighthearted <laughs> conversation. See you guys in a bit. <laughs> okay, bye. Let's 
take a moment to talk about our lovely sponsors, shall we? First of all, Oasis Aqua Lounge is a water-themed sex club located right here in Toronto at 231 Mutual Street. Oasis is inclusive of all genders and orientations and is shame-free when it comes to pleasure and play. Check them out at their website, oasisaqualounge.com. Unicorn Collaborators is the local leather business of two queer unicorns. They specialize in luxurious and colorful harnesses for all body types, and even craft non-conventional ones for your thigh, fist, or foot. Check them out at their Etsy shop under Unicorn Collaborators. Lovecrafters Toys is a non-gendered fantasy sex toy line that makes weird and wonderful dildos in the shape of tentacles, unicorn horns, mermaid tails, and more. Their high-quality silicone is hand-poured right here in Toronto. Check out their Etsy shop at Lovecrafters Toys. ComeAsYouAre.com is a trans-owned, trans-operated sex shop that also happens to be feminist and anti-capitalist. They carry only the best sex toys and want to give you the best price possible. Next time, use the coupon code BEDPOST, that's B-E-D-P-O-S-T, when checking out at ComeAsYouAre.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Bed Post Podcast. I'm here with my lovely guest, Dan Udi. Hi. Hello. We're back. And we're going to talk about comedy, aren't we? Fun stuff, Because finally. you are a former researcher, but you are a current comedian. Yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> and, okay, tell me what your style is. What's your subject matter? What are we getting when we're seeing Dan Udi, like, on stage at a comedy show? Uh, so it is, at the moment, mostly sex stuff. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Given what I do for a job and what I do in my free time. <laughs> it's sex stuff. I do sex in my free time, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I... How do I describe what I do? I have I have dabbled in uh, some kind of, like, dark kind of humor material, uh, which I am trying to figure out exactly where that does and doesn't work, Mm -hmm. and I kind of have put some of that on the back burner. At the moment, most of it is kind of, sort of kind of storytelling of my own sexual misadventures. (laughs) And are there, are there many? (laughs) Do you have a lot of material? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, God. What's, what's the most recent story that popped (laughs) into your head? (laughs) Okay. The most recent one that I'm work that I'm I'm workshopping at the moment. It's appeared in a couple of shows. Um, <laughs> is about how uh, I hooked up with someone um, who lived in the village. Um, mm-hmm. Went over to his apartment and blew him, and <laughs> then didn't hear from him for a while until he popped up on Grinder in my neighbourhood and was like, hmm, "Interesting." And I live far west, and I. I ignored it. Um, well, I kind of chatted for a bit because it was late and drunk, and then I ignored the rest. <laughs> um, only to leave my house and then see that he was the local candidate in the election. Okay. And also that a friend of mine who lived around the corner had also blown him too. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> Did you vote for him? I can't vote. I'm British. <laughs> But, like, there is bumping into someone you fucked in the street, and then there is seeing them, like, outside every house on every street in one mile radius. Oh, my God, that's funny. Oh, yeah. yeah. And that's how we learned his name. <laughs> <laughs> ah, okay. Now that I see it on a card, like, and it's on, paired with the face. Outside my apartment, in the lawn, that, like, I left one day, and I was like, ha! Ha! <laughs> 
Hello. Like, oh. <laughs> nice to meet you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm um, Dan. <laughs> so that has given me a lot of mileage. Um, oh my god, I love yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I, I ran into, I think my like, uh, generally, like, we do the polyamory thing. I'm married, but I, mm-hmm. we do the polyamory thing. So, and we generally try to not cross, like, worlds with people too much, just for our own comfort, you know. Mm-hmm. So, like, I can't date in the comedy community, really, you know. So, yeah. just, like, stuff like that. We just try to keep it, like, a yeah, yeah. little separate. So, we're not constantly coming across, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. past partners and lovers and stuff. Like, um, and so, recently, uh, I was at a wedding, and uh, one of my... Somebody I fucked. <laughs> I'm not even going to say, call him a partner. Um, and, yeah, he was like one of the servers for the, for the wedding. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Which was a little awkward, you know. Oh. <laughs> oh, how do you know that server? I'm like, wow. I, well, yeah. <laughs> that time oh. at Oasis. Uh, <laughs> Oh, yeah, Oasis. Oh, yeah, the Oasis. The straight version of what? (laughs) Yes, exactly. Oasis or Club M4. Yes, those are the two. Was it rebranded? Oh, there's there's two different places. Two different places. Yeah, uh, Club M4 is like... Actually, I just went there for the first time. They've been, like, sponsoring the stage show a lot. And they've... I've met the owners a thousand times. Like, they love Bedpost as well, so they come and watch it and stuff. But I actually was in the space for the first time because it's in, like, Mississauga. Like, it's right near Kipling Station. It's actually pretty convenient, but it's technically Mississauga. Um, Oh, God, it's, like, so big. I'm like, oh, yeah, just being outside of Toronto, the rent is probably a lot cheaper because it's, like, kind of like a big warehouse. That's Uh, what I imagine it's like. Yeah. And, like, Oasis is, like... like, a desolate place where, like... It is, yeah. 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 But it's, like, real chic and real good-looking. Like, it's a gorgeous space. But it's just funny, yeah. Oasis is, like, an old converted mansion. So it's, like, lots of rooms. Ooh. Yeah, it's cool. Different themes in the rooms. They all kind of look different and stuff. Oasis is right down the street from here. Holy shit. Yeah. And then Club M4 was, like, three massive rooms. Like, really open concept. Okay. And then, yeah, one room had, like, a bunch of little offshoots of little rooms, like, yeah. but no doors, so, you know, people could yeah, yeah. walk by and get a view like, of, okay. like, 10, 10 or 12 couples as they, like, walk the perimeter of the room. But, like, it's just such a massive space. I was like, oh, my God, the orgies. You could have a 500... <laughs> okay, that might be... That might be... But, like, in one of those rooms, you could easily have, like, 100 people fucking. I'm like, whoa, this is, like, such a grand scale. I'm, like, thinking of this. <laughs> But those are, yeah, as far as um, mostly het and, yeah, Club M4 is, like, very het because it's specifically, like, more of a swingers. Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. Place, which is very, like, binary. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, I had a... You come in, like, opposite gender cis couples and then you, like, swap. Yes, yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, some variations, but basically, like, there's not a lot of male-on-male happening, you know, or penis-on-penis happening. But, like, yeah, I had someone, like, non-binary... Um, and like when I was like coming with me and I was like, oh, hey, just wondering like what, what is the price for them? Cause it's gendered pricing. Yeah, yeah. And like, it, they were just like, Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, okay, so what do I tell them though? And like, I don't, you know, if we, if we show You're a minority, up, you get I, it cheap. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, come on, like just give them the female pricing, like give them the low, whatever yeah. the lower pricing <laughs> is. Cheapest, give it to them. It makes sense. But they're, yeah, they're, they're, I'm like, okay. So they gave me a non-answer and then I was like, okay, great. But so like, what do we pay when we go there? 
And are they going to try to make them pay? I don't know. Mm. Like, you know, it could potentially be awkward. Yeah. Because they're like, okay, are you... I don't know. They'll go with what they're presenting as, or they'll go with whatever they think their gender is, which is so problematic. I was like, uh uh-oh. So I'm hoping that conversation... I'm going to follow up on this conversation, too, because I'm hoping that will kind of move it in a place where they have, like, non-binary pricing. We just have to think about it as a stop. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, because they clearly hadn't. <laughs> oh dear. Oh dear. And they have like tea girl nights, so they yeah. do have trans clients, mm-hmm. but where they segregate them into like a one tea girl Tuesdays. Yeah. So I was like, okay, well maybe we can work on this. Maybe she was to accept it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Exactly. So okay, so your comedy has a lot, yes. a lot of fun stories of fun and whatnot about mishaps. Yeah, <laughs> of, and and yeah, that is basically what what I have been thinking about when I started getting into comedy is that most most comedians are men, most yes, male are. comedians are straight, yes, they and are. most of them are incels. Yes. <laughs> wow. Yeah, the, that, that the, is basically... The trifecta. Yeah, and the amount of times that I have had to sit through stories of a man being like, eh, pussy, oh, my crazy girlfriend. And people people laugh at this stuff, and I'm like, okay, well, like, you don't get to have the monopoly on, like, gross weird sex stories. <laughs> nice, yeah. Like, I feel like I might as well... Like, if you're going to put the rest of us through this, like, I see amazing female comedians doing the same thing, and I'm like, fuck it, I'm, I'm going to be doing this too, because, like... Comedy is a, is a very weird straight bubble, which actually, like, I didn't really have to encounter that many straight people all the time until I started doing it, at least not in Toronto anyway. How unfortunate for you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it does it does mean that stuff that is, like, really kind of, uh, not boring, but just sort of, like, a non-thing for queer people, like, can be made really funny for your, quote, average comedy audience because it's so alien to them. Right. So I realised, like, I have so much mileage out of stuff that, like, I find completely normal. I'm like, oh yeah, where I forget that like I would have to explain to audiences like, what a bathhouse is, what like, a bathhouse is, what grinder is, like what swapping <laughs> nude, like the fact that we all swap nudes and like I will get into an elevator and go to someone's apartment without knowing their name yeah. and like all this other random stuff that people were like, oh my god, you did what? It goes where? <laughs> and you're like, yeah. yeah. And people also always just laugh at butt stuff. Like it, they do, yes. <laughs> such low, lowest common denominator, but you just like you make an anal sex joke and people lose their shit. Yeah, because um, it's so like saucy. Ugh, it's so like taboo, right? <laughs> like uh, that's my ugh. Tuesday afternoon. Like yeah, <laughs> literally. Yeah. So do you ever encounter like you know feeling like othered in oh, those spaces? Completely. Yeah. I didn't have to hear the word faggot regularly until I started <gasps> doing comedy. Honestly. Yeah. In twenty nineteen. Twenty nineteen. Oh. Mostly on the internet from comedians, but like, yeah, I did. I did not have to hear people regularly spouting gross misogynist bullshit. I did not have to hear people making jokes at the expense of trans people all the time. Yeah. I didn't have to hear people making the amount of straight male comedians I hear doing routines. That's like, I'm not gay, but like, uh, and they'll just be like, oh, I fuck so and so. I'm not gay, but like, as a straight man, like, this is none of this is really funny. And like Or new. Yeah, or just doing like impressions of gay people, or like where the punchline is that like and she had a dip. Like Oy. people still do this shit. 
Um, and people still laugh at yeah, it. Yeah, that's the worst that's thing. That's the like, worst people thing. People still laugh at it. Like, it feels shitty enough, like, watching a comedian make a bad joke, but often you know, actually, like, that person, pro- like, doing comedy yourself is like, you know, that person probably isn't a bigot. They're just trying to, like, get laughs from people. And often you will figure out, like, you will say stuff, and by practicing it, you might realize something is too far. I tend to give people the benefit of the doubt sometimes when they say stuff, um, if it's the first time I've seen them, if it's not that bad, but, like, some the worst feeling comes when people laugh at it. Ugh. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, the rest of you are really icky and you think there is something funny about this punchline being that the dude was gay. Or you think there is something funny about the punchline being that this person was black. Or, like, all this kind of stuff. And, and people laugh at it. And thankfully, Toronto, like, has progressive enough comedy scenes because there's no one real one. I mean, we all do it, but like, there's so many different pockets of it. Yeah. Um, there are way more queer-friendly yeah. spaces. The, the, the queer comedy scene in the city is amazing. Yeah. It's yeah. huge. Yeah, yeah. Um, sometimes I actually find, like, people can be almost too nice and supportive if you want to try and figure out how to tackle some dark subjects. People can be a bit like, oh, are you okay? Like, oh, that's nice. People are too nice. And so, like, I, <laughs> I, I dabble sometimes in, like, other rooms that aren't full incel ones, but maybe are, like, a little less, like... Just, like, half incel. Well, just a little less kind of um, explicitly queer-friendly, safe space, happy, nice comedy. Right. Um, Supportive room. Yeah, like, if if you get, like, drunk liberal straight people, they will maybe laugh at, like, a different kind of joke than, than a room of, like sober, nice, queer people if it's early evening and it's daylight still. Does that, does that make sense? <laughs> yes. Yeah, because there's so many different yes. things that will like affect if people laugh or not. Like, even just like whether it's dark or whether it's light or how close together they're sitting or whether they're sober or not. Like Lots of factors. So many factors in trying to just like, you're trying to elicit like a uh, an automatic response like a, like laughter is a thing you can't really control yeah. you can hear it when you're choose- it. yeah you're not choosing to laugh at certain yeah. things right yeah. yeah I mean you're choosing sometimes like not to laugh you're choosing to be like completely silent if like this is super offensive I don't want to endorse it but like a laugh is an impulsive reaction and so actually there's so much stuff that goes into like making your audience members feel comfortable enough to laugh that the laugh yeah. yeah and that's very interesting what does that say about our ethics that our ethics might change Ooh. you know depending on like have we had a couple drinks are we with friends are we with like-minded people are yeah, we yeah, yeah. in this room versus that room it's like like our impulsive laughs might actually change depending on yeah, all these I mean, factors i don't i don't know if it would if it completely changes ethics but i think it would change your it definitely changes your comfort level and also, like, like for example, um, I have a joke that I have been working on for a while that I put on the back burner for a bit because, like, I realise it just, like, it doesn't work for audiences. But mm-hmm. I have a history of sexual assault. Mm-hmm. And I have seen some... I see so many, like, gross dudes make horrible rape jokes. Of course. There's a thing that people do. Of course, Where they make yeah. jokes about raping people. It's and it crazy. It's fucked up and horrible. completely crazy. Yeah. Yes. I've seen some female comedians do amazing jokes. About sexual assault. About sexual assault. Yes, me too. Yeah. And I have yeah. never seen a queer male comedian make a joke about that. I think because there's less of us, yeah. um, even though actually, like, a lot of people have experienced this kind of stuff. But I've never seen someone, like, joke about that. And I was like, okay, this is a thing I've never seen someone do. I actually have the opportunity to, like, make a joke that, like... Could resonate with other yeah. yeah but that also makes people think because I think uh, when people talk about say kind of sexual violence or whatever they all they they all people are getting more acquainted with the conversation about around men being violent towards women yeah but they maybe haven't thought about the fact that men are so shitty they're violent to each other like yeah. that's the main premise that I've been working from yeah, yeah and so like I I had I had this kind of this little bit that I've got where I basically say uh, that I have been it's it's awkward 
being a gay man in the era of, of Me Too because like on the one hand you are very much part of the problem mm-hmm. but on the other I'm a survivor as well and so I want to join in and be like all men are assholes but my rapist was super hot <laughs> oh god <laughs> Yeah, and yeah. that leads into like I, I basically like I it, I've, I've been trying to sort of work on other ways to flesh out that premise, yeah. um, but also in a way that makes people feel comfortable in the sense that they don't think you're having a meltdown on stage, mm-hmm. that that where they know that I'm okay enough to be talking about this with people, but also that like it's about the intention. Yeah, I'm behind like, it. But it's 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 really hard because if you say the R word, so many people look at me and assume that I'm about to make a joke about assaulting somebody because you're a man yeah yeah yeah, yeah um, sure. so like I've, I, I did that a few times and it basically worked half the times it tanked the rest of them yeah and I figured it, it needs so it needs like a specific audience but also like other kind of tags and lines all around it that will basically help people be comfortable enough to know that to be able to laugh at yeah, that or to, to be them, able to know that they're yeah. okay that I'm okay and this joke actually is about how shitty men are Mm-hmm. And actually, it's about how like if you're a hot person, you can get away with anything, and, and that can. like yeah, yeah. like men are terrible, hot men are like really really bad because they think they can just get away. They with They can stuff. literally do anything. Yeah, they want. And it's about like it's and about they get whatever they want. They it's think about they male can get entitlement. Whatever. It's yeah. about like it's about it's about toxic masculinity, but also it's about the fact that like maybe it also is about the fact that 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 we as men, if we experience this stuff, don't talk about it very much. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so many things into it, and 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 so I've had to like put it on the side. But yeah, like that is one of those. Those things where audiences have... They have to feel a certain kind of safe. Yes. Um, and I found it's worked really well with other comics because other comics always know what other... Like, the other comics generally aren't trying to attack anyone. And they're probably, like, fine-ish, even though most comics are, like, super depressed. But, like... <laughs> fine-ish. We're yeah, fine-ish. Like, like, comics will laugh at, like, dark jokes because they will be, like, you're already... Like, you're used to seeing comedy. You know, like, what the structure of a joke is. You know yes. all that kind of stuff. But it's, it's getting, like, regular comedy attendees to feel comfortable with that kind of material. The 905ers. Yeah. Re- requires a lot of warming <laughs> The general up. audience. The general audience. The general comedy people. Yes. Um, uh, for the record, if anyone is interested in some really good jokes about sexual assault and rape, Cameron Esposito has a full hour called Rape Jokes. Wow. Where she's a queer woman. She's a queer female comedian. Um, and she, yeah, has basically, like, she, she did a full hour of, like, going into that topic and trying to make it into like a good hour and really bring people to think seriously about this kind of stuff but also being like this is how this is, comedy is about laughing at shit stuff yes um, but I see so many comedians that basically kind of uh, use it as like a substitute for therapy um, yeah, which that, can be that, kind of that can to be, watch yes, yeah for yeah. an audience member um, that's, so, that's the thing you're talking about is oh they're not okay yeah. like the, the performer is not and okay and certainly when I was beginning I I, uh, I knew how I felt about certain topics but I, did, but I hadn't really like appreciated how audiences responded and so it was clear that's the response I was getting yes um, when I tried just like some different topics and I was like okay like feels therapeutic yeah however <laughs> I was like this is not my therapy I have someone that I pay good money for <laughs> yeah. um, I need to figure out how to make people laugh with this not just like go silent and look shocked um, which, which which happens sometimes when you see people who are just like talking about trauma and you're like oh like there's a good joke in there yeah but right now people are like it's too raw yeah, or it's it feels too raw all the people are concerned for you yeah like you we 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 see that you're like in it yes and it's still yeah in the struggle or in your feelings about yeah. it or yeah and we or see- experiencing it we can see you experiencing it right now on stage as opposed to this happened to me and i'm able to you know have the bigger picture yeah. view on it it's like oh no this person like it's too soon or it's too yeah, fresh yeah there there's one where it, where you feel like you're watching someone try to cope yes 
And then there is watching someone, like, use it as a way to just talk about something bigger and be like, this is a horrible thing, but it also makes us think about something else funny or absurd or fucked up, but I'm taking you on this journey with me and, and I'm in control of it. Yes, it's not controlling con- me. Yes, that is, yeah, that's yeah. important way um, to make the audience feel really comfortable. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, like, yeah, I, so basically, like, I have a couple of those, like, stored away, um, which I know are, like, a kind of a good, interesting premises, and mm-hmm. I'm not even sure how we <laughs> got onto this bit, but um, <laughs> I generally, like, come from the perspective or from, from the... You, you take the approach that I expect my audience will, will be majority straight cis people. Yeah. Um, who won't really have encountered much gay culture because of who they are. Yeah. Um, the and that I can own. make my life, which is kind of like normal to me, I can make it like absurd and funny and also maybe try to like force them to think about different things. So if you like play into a stereotype, you can actually help educate people as to how a stereotype is just that. Like, it's insane and it's stupid. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if you make people laugh at the stereotype, you can be like, this is this is wild. This is a joke. I'm making a joke about... about... It's tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, and so I'm not... You see so many comments be like, this is my TED Talk, but like... I'm 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 not trying to do a TED talk, but I'm trying to be like, okay, how can I like the subtext is a TED talk. The, sub, the, sub, the subtext of all my dick jokes. <laughs> yes, yes. Is a TED talk for straight people. Yes. Like anal is okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just use plenty of lube and a condom. I yeah. Think, but... <laughs> <You're> amazing. <laughs> So unfortunately, Dan, we have to wrap it up oh, there. It's like we're just getting started. I know, right? Um, but uh, while we're on talking about comedy, can you tell us? Uh, I don't know if you have any shows coming up or things you play at places you play at regularly. When is this coming out? Do we know? Uh, on Sunday. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Uh, so, so anything you so, literally have um, coming up? Yeah. I have a couple of shows. Uh, December first. I am performing on the Crimson Wave at Comedy Bar. I was is... just going to say that. Okay, while you're talking... The Crimson I... Wave is great. I was just going to be like, mm, have you been on the Crimson Wave? Because... This is my first time. I've wanted to Crimson Wave for a long while. This is my first time doing it. Amazing. And that's Sunday nights at that the Comedy Bar. That is Sunday nights at Comedy Bar. I think it's 9.30pm. It is a feminist and LGBTQ friendly comedy show with zero rape jokes or grossness or phobias of things. Mm-hmm. Um, it is sex positive. It is fun. You should all come and see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's Jess Beaulieu and Natalie Norman who yes, run that, who are good friends of the pod. Oh, are they? Of course <laughs> yeah. they are. I gotta have them back on the pod, actually. It's been way too long for both of them. Yeah. Um, and uh, also, what are your social medias, if you'd like uh, to people to follow you? My Instagram is at dutyofficial, so that's D-U-D-Y official. Mm-hmm. My Twitter, I'm just starting it up for the fourth time because I have a love-hate relationship <laughs> with, with Twitter. <laughs> Yeah, but the constant feed of hot takes makes me want to gouge out my eyeballs. (laughs) And I'm a comedian and you gotta use it. So this will force me to set it up again and start making daily jokes. Follow me, please. Good. What's what's the name on that? It is the same. That's Duty Official. D-U-D-Y Official. Okay, perfect. And uh, if we follow you on those platforms, we can also see where you're doing shows up uh, beyond December 1st. Instagram, every month I put up a poster and it will tell you exactly where I am playing so you can... Come see me. Amazing. Well, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the pod, Thank Dan. you for having me. Thank you so much. And it, you were so great, uh, at, like, at the stage show at Bedpost, so people oh, should definitely go and see it. It was also the best audience I think I've had in a very long time. It's a really great audience. Yeah, so if you haven't been to it, everybody go. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Although I don't know why you'd be listening to this if you haven't ever been if to the show. <laughs> <laughs> but if you haven't, I mean, it happens the third Friday of every month at 8pm at the Social Capital Theatre. Um, as for other Bedpostly things, uh, the Bedpost podcast on Instagram... 
or Bedpost Erotica on Facebook. We're the Bedpost Sex Show at gmail.com if you want to email me. We're bedpost.ca, that's our website. And the Bedpost Sex Show on YouTube. We have a fun YouTube series that we're doing right now where I review sex toys with comedians. So it's right up our alley, isn't it, Dan? <laughs> And then uh, we didn't do much talk about my sex work stuff, but if you care to uh, find out more about me as a pro dom, you can look at at the Lady Pim one on Twitter. And then, unfortunately, my Lady Pim Instagram just got deleted. No big oh. surprise there. Uh, it's happened many yeah, times for all my sex, sexy accounts. So now on Instagram, my Lady Pim thing is pim.lady. So there you have it. One last huge thank you to Stephanie Copeland, who does all the original music for this podcast. You can check out all her stuff at stephcopelandmusic.com. One huge thank you again to Dan Udi. And one huge thank you to Aaron Biss. <laughs> Bye, everyone. We'll see you next time with another fun guest talking about sex and sexuality. Bye. Bye. This podcast has been brought to you by the Sonar Network.